and welcome to another episode of Rethink Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Russo, and today I'm speaking with Michael Maurer. Hi, Michael. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Michael envisions frictionless commerce using cloud and mobile, serving the customer across any and all channels. Does that sound about right, Michael? Is that your vision? Of course. Of course. I share that vision with you. Let's get into your major accomplishments. And my notes are so heavy because of all of the things that you've done, like lifting it up to get here. <laughs> With more than 30 years of experience in designing retail software, Michael is considered an innovator and one of the global experts in retail technology. His credits are many, including founding and leading Retail Pro for almost 20 years, an international retail technology solution still used today in almost 90 countries. The development of the first web-based online UPC catalogs, ultimately acquired by SPS Commerce, and leading the development of QuickBooks POS for Silicon Valley giant Intuit. No small task. <laughs> Michael is now the founder and CEO of Teamwork Commerce, and that's why we're here today. Teamwork Commerce is another retail technology solution that has grown to over 400 employees, nine global offices, and tens of thousands of deployments since its inception in 2009. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to have this discussion with you and go through some of these prepared questions and get into some conversational aspects of it. And I already asked ChatGPT for the answers, so there will be a grade at the end on either if they're right or where right. <laughs> so let's see. Let's start by talking about the current state of retail. And please touch on the importance of Omnichannel. Well, we're, you know, definitely in a transition. It's moving remarkably fast. So as you mentioned, I've been around a while and I've seen transitions, many transitions over the last 30 some years. And I've never seen the velocity of change that I'm seeing currently. And that has to do with the fact that there has been an influx of technologies that have made it possible for consumers to engage with a brand on in various ways and on different channels. And frankly, brands have been slow to catch on to these technological innovations. There has been some complacency in adapting to how the retail world works today. There is a massive demographic shift and change in how consumers relate to brands, to retail and shop. And these changes are all happening very quickly. There's a lot of money at stake. There is some degree of fear. There's some degree of skepticism. There's also just fear that it's something new and people don't fully understand it. So maybe we'll talk about some of those things in this interview. So what you're referring to is management has fear. They have fear of understanding it. Is that what your brands, their teams are having a hard time ad adapting and adopting? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. A part of it is assuming they understand some of these changes when they don't really. They've heard the buzzwords. I even take a word like omnichannel. People kind of get the idea of the definition of it, but many people don't really understand it. Many people don't understand, let's say, what it means in detail, omnichannel. And that lack of understanding basically results in not having a sense of strategy or direction. So that's part of it. Things are have been working a certain way. So when investments are made, people, you know, tend to want to keep gaining from the past investments they made. They don't want to 
necessarily make new investments. But disruptive innovation, by its very definition, kills the old ways and brings in new ways, and it's disruptive. So you have to make a reinvestment, but the recalcitrance to do so is what I think hamstrings a lot of companies today. And then, as I said, the knowledge of what it really means. One of my theories on why there might be a little bit of a blockage there that you're referring to is retail organizations are still set up in ways that the structure of an organization is set up in a way that doesn't really allow for digital and omni-channel adoption. And here's what I mean, and I'd love your thoughts on it. So they're set up kind of like by merch flow. Okay. So that's good because that's the primary business model. Technology solutions today that are omni-channel, and it's in the word and it's of itself, touches many different departments. And when you have cross-divisional and cross-departmental benefits, you actually have inherent issues with how to bring it on board. Who's going to pay for it? Who gets the P&L benefit? How does it get implemented? Who's actually accountable for it? And so it just kind of sits there. What are your thoughts on this theory that I have? I couldn't agree with you more. Um, So that's definitely the case. Typically, you have to look at how these things evolved to see how they got there. You know, there was brick and mortar for years and years, and then e-commerce came on the line and people didn't really understand it or its implications. They started to develop a division for it. And so then you have this immediate polarization of the division between e-commerce and brick and mortar. And actually, in fact, in many organizations, you'll find them fiercely competing with each other. They're competing for investment dollars. They're competing for attention. The e-commerce guys, you know, think, hey, we're the new thing. We're taking over the world. It's going to be the end of brick and mortar was one philosophy at one point. And, you know, but brick and mortar guys were bringing all the revenue in the early stages. And then, of course, that did start to erode, or I should say the e-commerce started to grow. Then it became a question, but it's still very much a balance. So in that framework, you don't have cooperation. And I think fundamentally, what the first action a company needs to take in a situation like that is step back and take a look at the brand from the view of the consumer. You know, there is a tendency to do what you've always done, right? Because it's comfortable, people are in their comfort zone, but they need to step back and, you know, reinvent themselves to some extent. And by that, I mean, they need to take a look at what is their reason for existence? The reason for existence lies in the consumer, right? So look at it from the consumer's point of view. The consumer engages with the brand, you know, online or in store or in advertising or on their phone. They're on all these different channels. And that needs to be embraced by the organization, looking at the omni-channel nature of that. And then the organization needs to be structured around the implementation of creating a common view of the brand for the consumer. So we touched on this organizational point. It's very often the challenge companies have with embracing this. Exactly that. So that's from the inside looking out. Okay, how does an organization, how does the whole industry think about restructuring? No small task there, but you may raise a major point to also stay hyper-focused on the consumer. So you're talking about cohesive experiences and personalized shopping experiences. And so that's a big focus of teamwork commerce. Why don't you touch on that? You're leading teamwork commerce and you and the team are hyper-focused on this. How can uh, a retailer and brand 
build strong omni-channel strategy? Well, it begins with, first of all, adoption of the viewpoint that what is omni-channel, understanding what it really means. So you can break down omni-channel. First of all, define the term and don't be shy if you don't really know what it means. And if you've got technology guys around throwing out acronyms and capabilities and you don't really follow it, get those all cleared up first so that you really understand what's being talked about here. It's very meaningful. But when you break it down into activities, you have to think about it from the point of view of the consumer, as I said before. So consumer goes into the store and they see the brand, they experience it, they're experiencing the merchandise. That's good. That's the usual thing. So, you know, you've had your historical design, you know, visual merchandising, people get the store looking great. It's still needed today. But now we have consumers who are going online and they see something. They're online and they see the product. They want to pick it up in the store. So obviously it should be frictionless for them to look at a product and say, I want to pick this up in the store. Or I would like this shipped to my home. Or I would like to have it ready for me to try on in the store. That would be something they may want to do from their phone or from online. If they buy something online, it may be more convenient for them to return it to the store. And so that means the store has to have the capability of being aware of that e-commerce transaction and being able to make a return against it so that the proper credit or refund is, is extended to the customer. And these are really, really simple tasks I'm talking about now. It can be even more complex than that. As we move forward, you may get into um, things like same-day delivery. So I need the product. I need it now. I can't leave the office. I'm willing to pay a little extra for it, but I'd like it delivered to the office before I go home. So I want to be able to go online quickly, and then I want um, a store dispatch that's nearest where my office is located and have the product couriered to my office before I get off work at five o'clock and have it with me so I can wear it that evening, for example. This kind of ultra service is part of what Omnichannel is about. It's what frictionless commerce is about, which, by the way, is the stated purpose of our company. Those are very key points. And if I may, something that is well acknowledged by marketers these days is that what's happened is the demographic and the, the buying habits of consumers have very much polarized. So we're all used to the common thing. You walk into the store, hey, how am I help you? And it's kind of a rote script that's always used on the consumer. That actually is a very changed world. You actually have this polarization of people in two extreme categories. One is, leave me completely alone. I just want to come in and look, or I want to go online and look. I don't want a chatbot asking me, how can I help you? Do you need some additional help? I hate that annoyance, right? I certainly don't want people assaulting me when I walk into the store. That's one group of people. Another group of people is the absolute opposite of that. I want to be treated like a king or a queen. And I want, you know, instant service on anything, every whim I may have. And the better you cater to that service, the more loyalty you build with a customer. Actually, both is true. The more you leave them alone when they want to be left alone, and the more you cater to their king and queen wishes when they want the service, the more loyalty you're building with that customer. And that's a big part of Omnichannel is recognizing that characteristic in the consumer these days, and then being able to address it with good technology solutions. One of the good things about figuring out how to approach the consumer in all of these different selling touch points, let's call them, online, in-store, in their car, pulling up, et cetera, is 
all of the management at retail are all consumers themselves. So, you know, it's not that hard to imagine because everyone's a shopper or in retail or getting groceries or having something delivered or getting that dreaded call from your child that tomorrow's the bake sale and it's 7.30 and you're just leaving the office and you just want those muffins delivered to your home so it looks like you made them. All those types of human aspects of how to navigate commerce in general. I mean, you could take it to you know a very high level. We're all consumers of, of that. We're all consumers of life and needing to be comfortable as we manage our day and time and lives and families and our jobs and all of these things. So if the emphasis is on that and you work backwards from either your own experience or something anecdotal and you kind of really build out a strategy and to some extent, you don't even really have to reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of retailers doing a lot of really good things. And you can partner with Teamwork Commerce, who will provide that type of guidance as well and sort of help you lay out that plan. So the thing with retailers is they have this ongoing, the retail industry has like nonstop emergencies. I call it whack-a-mole. And it usually draws away the brain space, the attention, and the, the resources, human and financial, from the planning phase. So maybe they do have enough bandwidth for whack-a-mole and maybe like a six-month plan, maybe a 12-month plan, but maybe the real change takes a longer plan and discipline and focus and building into a crawl, walk, run, layering on of strategy to really have an omni-channel experience. And that is always being challenged by just the nature of the industry itself. So from your vantage point with all of your experience and leading the teams at Teamwork, you have to build a partnership with these guys, kind of hold their hand while they're constantly putting out fires. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Wow, you hit the nail on the head, by the way. I love the whack-a-mole expression. Been there so many times. You're absolutely correct. It does take a program. It, it's not a single shot thing. It's a gradual evolution of things. And probably the urgency from a lot of retailers today comes from the fact that they procrastinated and weren't starting to make changes earlier. But that's okay. I mean, they're going to make them now. So let's begin. But let's not now pretend we can run 100 miles an hour when we should have been going, you know, first 10, then 20, then 30, you know, gradually building up. So that's the first thing. But I do think that the first step is to understand and define what it means across the organization. Like everybody has to have agreement. Okay, we're going to get rid of these silos of e-commerce and store. We're going to get rid of these things that make it non-omnichannel. We're going to at least be aware of the things that we have to build, where we need to break down the walls. That must be the first step, and there has to be buy-in top-down on that. That's the first step. And often we find that that takes some kind of briefing, pep talk, orientation, and we begin usually our engagements with something like, don't think of us as a vendor. Think of us as a partner. Think of us as someone who is part of your organization. And now we want to have a voice. We're not going to just fill your order. If you want us to just fill your order and not care what the result is going to be, that's not our position. That's not a position we want to be in. We want a position of success. So we have a unique advantage in that we see many, 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 many different retail organizations and where they were successful, where they weren't, where technology really worked or where it didn't work for them. So we're actually a great partner to bring to the table. 
and help make a plan. Now, it's true that organizations are in different places. Some are in a catastrophic situation where they've had legacy technology going on for years and they don't even know where to start and it looks daunting. It's okay if it feels daunting. It's okay. It is just confront where you really are and then let's start take the step, start taking the steps to get you where you need to be. So the initial goals need to be foundational. You need to have the correct foundation, first of all. You need to be working with someone who has experience in the area, who has a technology stack that's been curated for this situation. So, you know, you really don't want to be working with people that are promising to build something who have no experience in it. And then you'll sort of build from the foundation up. So, of course, that begins with basic inventory control systems like that. You've got to have, you know, a decent accounting system. And you have to pick apart whatever scotch, you know, tape legacy systems you've already got there. And you have to create a plan to gradually move it over onto something stable and reliable. And then you start building on the functionality piece by piece on top of that. I should say implementing technologies built, but you have to start implementing it piece by piece as the organization can consume it. Make sense? So you're right. Yeah, absolutely. It's crawl, walk, run. It's baby steps. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't rip and repeat, rip and replace. I mean, these are functioning entities. They're alive. You can't do surgery while the patient's awake. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly correct. All of those. I came up with like a million cliches in like a 30 second. That was... Okay. Paint the airplane while you're flying it. I'll throw one in. (laughs) There you go. Now we're cooking with gas. So you're right. And so with your experience, certainly on the different sides and aspects of that technology solution onboarding, you've got that, you've got that vision on what it takes to hold the hand and get them through. And also when to see red flags, when it's like, okay, we need to slow down for a second here because we don't, they don't have the right people, place, mindset, money, time frame. You know, you can actually advise them. You become, like you said, an advisor, you know, someone who's going to keep them from going off the rails in this journey because it is fraught with stories, as we know. Oh, yeah. So the role of the advisor and the provider is kind of a new thing. Back in the day, it was like, I can do this and maybe you couldn't, but you said you could as a supplier. But now it's like, you know, what? that's so short-sighted. I'm going to advise you. I'm going to take be with you on this journey. Your success is my success. And I'm sure that's how you approach it. Absolutely. That is such a sincere statement that is made at the beginning of each of our engagements. And it is, you know, it sounds marketing-ish at first, right? But it, it really isn't. And you also have to get agreement that I'm going to challenge some of your ideas because I have the experience of other retailers. And I want you to be open to receiving some other points of view. And another thing is there has to be agreement that along the way, there's going to be stumble. There are mistakes that are going to be made by one side or the other. There's going to be mistakes that is not solved by shouting at the vendor or shouting at the customer. You know, these things, it's a process of rebuilding, as we said, something that's in motion. So there's going to be some disruption. By the way, Whenever you've got a chaotic situation and you're trying to bring some order to it, it's very, the process sometimes is very disturbing to people because they're used to a set way of things and now you're bringing about change. 
So change management is a very important part of all of this. I mean, it's essential to change, but you've got to be very inclusive of people. You can't just ram it down their throats. So there's got to be buy-in. There's got to be enlightenment and understanding of why it's good. And at the lowest levels, it's why it's good to keep your job. And at the higher levels, it's why it's good to still get ROI on your investment, you know, so. You raise such an interesting point, and I don't know the answer to this, but it's like, if I were in your position, I probably wouldn't even start a project unless there was an internal person whose hat was on, who was the manager of change communication. I don't think it can even happen without knowing that it is a feature of the onboarding or the process, that it will be dealt with, that we will get updates, and that there will be transparency on that communication. And I don't really think that's actually a thing, but I think it should be. What do you think? I agree. Some organizations have someone sort of with that role. You know, there's usually a project manager sometimes. Often in a larger organization, there's a project manager on the client side of the operation as well as a project manager on our side, and they're collaborating and they're working on the communication. It's fundamental responsibility of the project manager or project managers. But oftentimes, you know, resources are constrained. Budgets is tight. Budgets are always tight, of course. And so that's not the area to really skimp. So quite often what we'll do is, okay, you don't have the personnel for this. We're going to kind of take on that role a little bit. And yeah, it's going to maybe increase the fees a little bit, but we just need to cover the cost of this because it's essential to avoiding disruption of the business or minimizing disruption of the business in order to get this migration done, for sure. Right. I like to say that particularly like when you have kind of a outside of the U.S. technology company try to pitch to U.S. companies, and I'm like, well, because I said so, technique doesn't really work here. Yeah. We don't really, especially in American retail organizations, top-down management, because I said so, is just not where it's at. I mean, it's very bottoms up. It's very bring the stakeholders in, bring the people, the task and taskers and doers who are really affected by this and get their buy-in. So it is a really important piece to the puzzle. Yeah, because I said so is not really a strategy. Yeah, exactly. And when you don't have the buy-in, then basically you get the resistance and then the project becomes so much harder. It would be much easier if you included them in the takeoff, right? And included them in the project and let them participate. And then, you know, what do you get is, of course, contribution of ideas and, hey, why don't we consider this and all of that. But with agreement, you know, groups get things done. So building that agreement is extremely important. But that brings it back to what are we agreeing to do here, right? What are we trying to do? with all of this you know what is the reason for existence that's the fundamental piece which rolls back to the consumer so you have to sort of get buy-in on well wait a minute why are you a retailer why are you in business you know and when you get these answers like to make money you know that isn't really much of a purpose right you have to look at something a bit deeper than that it sure my making money is important but there has to be some motivation you know i love the brand to enrich the lifestyle of someone in this way you know look fantastic on the runway. I don't know. Whatever these purposes are, get them because that is kind of the the life of the thing, right? That's the fire. So you get that going. Then behind the purpose, you know, becomes the plan for what are you going to actually do to execute on that purpose. 
and bringing it back to our omni-channel point, I would say that you have to look at who you're doing this for today and where are they? Just where are they? What do they do? What do they expect of the brand? How do they prefer to engage with the brand? And you have to accept that. You have to understand that. You may not even agree with it necessarily, but you have to understand because that is your consumer and your consumer relates closely to your purpose. So then you have to start building those technological arms, those processes and methodologies to now serve that new consumer. The consumer has changed. The consumer is being offered change and is changing with change. And if you, the retailer, that's not changing with everything else, there becomes a very big gap. That's They're changing because they're being offered op- options. They're being led away from the old way. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a keeping up with the Joneses, FOMO type. You don't have a choice anymore. You have to do it. Well, most consumers today were raised on one of these, right? From cell phones. And True. they have this enormous power in their hands. And they've never known another life than that. And so the expectations are exceedingly high. Very true. I was going to ask you, how do you feel about the word seamless as a kind of another way to say omnichannel? Well, I like the word seamless. That's how I feel about it. Okay, good. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's a marketing term to create confidence and ease for for people who are shopping for technology. But its need is, is true, which is why it's a marketing term. But what does it really mean? There used to be a thing in, in the technology, in the retail technology industry, and there still is, best of breed, best of breed. We're going to do the best of this, best of that. And it sounds good on paper, but it actually isn't necessarily realistic because you could take an inventory control system and say, oh, I'm going to get the best PO system in the world, and then I'm going to go find the best receiving system of the world, and then I'm going to go find the best inventory control system of the world. And somehow I'm going to make these things all work together. And that's where that plan fails, because the integration of different products is a task that's sometimes formidable. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of technological advances that make the integration between two different bodies of software easier. There's the whole sense of API infrastructures and the way data is exchanged in real time. There's some stuff called webhooks, you know, to transmit information in real time and catch it, you know, publish it and, re- and subscribe to it on the other end that makes data flow really quickly between different applications. So there's a lot of great tools out there today. But it does take an experienced architectural viewpoint to see where you should draw the lines of, oh, this belongs to this application, this belongs to this world. In our case, we often find ourselves working with ERP systems. ERP systems Enterprise resource planning systems is the full name, are you know great at accounting. They're great at manufacturing, distribution, inventory management. They have real good control typically of the basics. So it would be very silly to to rip out a good system that's doing that. Retail is kind of its own game. Retail has a lot to do with functionality that serves customers that serves the consumer. It's more about that than it is about those basics. But nevertheless, those basics are essential to being able to serve the customer. I have to have accurate inventory to know 
if I can offer a product to a customer. I don't have it in the store. Let me look it up and see where it is. I have to have that inventory control piece. So the relationship is between a system, a retail management system like Teamwork and almost a retail ERP system and a traditional ERP system has to be very well architected. The exchange of information has to be very well designed. And one of the values we bring to the table is experiences of integrations which were successful and which were unsuccessful and why they were unsuccessful. For example, a common error made is trying to synchronize data in two different systems while both systems each have the power to overwrite the data of the other. In other words, you have editing going on. on let, let's take a customer database. So we're going to get the best CRM system in the world, and then we're going to get the best POS system in the world, and then we're going to get the best e-commerce system in the world. That's fine, but who's the master of the customer data? Is it the e-commerce system? Is it the POS system? Is it the CRM system? A lot of people will default and say the CRM system. That's fine, but then if they're in control, then if I add my name and my contact information in the e-commerce site, does that CRM system ensure that that data added on the e-commerce site also get to point of sale? Do they ensure that that, that data is synchronized? Coming back to the omni-channel point, omni-channel begins with this concept of the ability to recognize a customer when they show up on a channel and engage with them, having recognized that customer. What does recognize the customer mean? It means you know what they've purchased online, you know what they've purchased in the store, you know what wish list they have, you know what they don't like. You're not going to bore them with the same questions that they've already said, I don't want this, because you have all that information in a single consolidated point. That's the essence of Omnichannel. So if you need to orchestrate that information and you have an external system that holds all that data but is not connected well to these other endpoints that are actually servicing the customer. I mean, you're using it to do email campaigns and that's it. You're not actually using it to service the customer. So the architecture of how these systems integrate with each other is actually, there's a science to it, a very important science to it. And so there, one of our roles when we get into an engagement is to look at the existing systems, to look at some systems that the client thinks they desire and see how those all are going to work in the mosaic. Because it's true, one company cannot build everything. There are different experts in different fields, but you don't want to get it too micro divided and you lose the connectivity and you don't want to depend every, you know, float everything on one platform because then you're going to get some mediocre areas in other places. So what we found is that dividing, taking over the, owning the responsibility for consumer-facing applications online, in-store, and so on, having that piece interfacing with a backend like an ERP system or warehousing system, and you know working with applications that are strong in those areas are the best, and then building the integrations between those two systems so that data flows almost seamlessly, coming back to your original word, between those two systems. But the architecture to achieve that seamlessness is very specific and needs to be done right. I believe where we are today is the golden age of this architecture you are describing. And that is the result of clunky duct taped micro solutions that as they came out were like the next new shiny thing. And people were like, yay, 
am going to do this. And then things weren't interacting well together, but there was a lot of newness. And now, so in the past, let's say five-ish years, there was a ton of consolidation. So that architecture reflects the consolidation, which is a which is a way for a, a customer, and the customer being the the retailer, to know that it's already been figured out that these all talk well to each other. Period. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. Yep. I would say that the fundamentals of that are true. The technology certainly has been certainly has been figured out. The implementation of the technology needs to be implemented by people who have experience in who have that knowledge and who have the experience in doing it, you know, have a track record of successful integration, you know, as opposed to the promise, sure, we'll do that. That's really important. Otherwise, it's you become part of the the learning process for, you know, basically the retailers funding the learning. Right. So you want to go with someone who's done it, basically. True. And then back to seamless and, and we can be done with that. But the reason why it's a marketing tool is because for a while it wasn't. So now it's you have to say it is because because now it is. So right. there was that clunky duct tapey stack and not seamless. So it's like, oh, but we are now. So that's why maybe it's it goes without saying, like, of course it's seamless because we're not doing that duct taping anymore. So there's really no need to say it because it's just kind of an old way to look at things. Which brings me to another kind of oldish, newish technology. And about a year ago, I was saying how if you are telling people you're, you know, there's a lot of technology out there that's like, we're an AI based, et cetera, et cetera. And my feeling was AI is like salt in a recipe. Like it's always there. Like, you know, it's, it's not really like this recipe has salt. (laughs) You should try it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It had gotten to that point. Now that was before all that's going on now where it's talked about again, but it's talked about in a different way. Let's pick somewhere in that scheme of what it is and does and talk about emerging technologies like artificial AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. And how does that play into teamwork now, teamwork later, the solutions? What are the top line thoughts on that? Well, there's no question that at this juncture, and you know, AI has been around for actually some decades and the concepts, the early stages, and there's always this anticipation of what's going to come, but it isn't now type of thing. But we're definitely at some amazing, we're starting to see some uh, really mind-blowing things being done with it. And some of the technologies by some of the recent companies that have just been released this year are, it's a land grab. It's like, there's so much possibility there. However, that was also the case with the internet. That was also the case with, you know, graphical user interface at one point in time. And people listening to this may not even know what I'm talking about because it's always been graphical in their lifetime. But anyway, these big advances, you know, occur every decade or two. And when they do, it opens up a whole plethora of opportunities, basically. So we're studying what is the significance of where we've reached today in AI. It's clear to see, it's pretty easy to imagine, thanks to all of our science fiction movies and television series, where AI is going to be. That's a vision. You can see where it's going to be. That, that's the dream that everybody wants to go for, or at least believe will happen. 
and I truly believe it will happen, but that isn't here today. What is the reality of day? So you have to take a look at what is realistic to get done with that technology today. And there are amazing things possible to do with that technology. So with AI, you could, you know, definitely applying it with consumer data. So again, one of the key fundamentals of retail from the last hundreds and hundreds of years has been be where the customer is and then offer the customer the product that they will want, right? That's like step one. And of course, be where the customer is and offer them what they want is a much more sophisticated question today than it was even 20 years ago, right? So with AI, that sophistication of that of the answer to that question can be achieved because AI can look at, you know, literally terabytes of data and obviously much faster than a human being can analyze something like the perfect answer or a close to perfect answer. So if you wanted to, you know, promote to a sector of your consumer base a particular class of product or a new product, you could pose that question to AI and it would look through all the purchases, all the wish lists, all the this, that's and the other thing, and in about four seconds deliver you the exact right thing to offer to that customer. So different forms of recommendation is something that AI will be exceptional at. Some other use cases might be presentation of products. For example, you could create a virtual dressing room because you, you have images of all your products and you could offer the customer to take a, a picture of themselves wearing just about anything, good lighting, or you could take a have them pick from a set of avatars that most represents most like their body type. And then you could dress that picture in all your different products in different combinations and basically try it on for them, a virtual trial. And AI can be used to recreate the image of the product and mold it to the body of the person, again, in a few seconds, and show them exactly what they might look like in that product or combine it with other products. So the creative use of AI technology and, and something like that is, you know, again, mind-blowing. And that would be another example. So, but it doesn't stop there, of course, at all. There's many applications for AI in our industry. Yeah, tailor personal recommendations. And then my mind always thinks like, well, why does brick and mortar lose out? Like loses out when it's not digital. But maybe an option could be you run something through an AI program on that's like a merchandising driven one that ties back to sales and you have 2 hour windows of what really is primarily sold or to, looked for, no, sold. And maybe you flip the floor every two hours. I mean, you know, that's normally a very big ask. Not flip the floor, but like pull things up and back. And that's normally a very yeah, yeah, yeah. A very big ask for a store team. But if you're gonna compete with what is digitally tailored, how else can you compete with what's going on online? Right? So there's a fluidity missing. First of all, don't fall for the trap of the silo again. Online and in-store is the same thing. I'm in the trap. I'm in the hole. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's one team, right? So uh, you're online. You're looking at products. First thing to recognize is that physical stores will always, well, for the next few decades, always have an advantage over online and that they'll be able to give you an experience that you can't get online. You can feel the merchandise. You can actually physically try it on. You can see how you look. 
you can make human contact with another human being and discuss the product, right? That's actually a very valuable thing. Yes, you could do it in a chat like we're doing right now, but it's a little bit different and it's less of an experience than it would be if we were doing it in person. So the physical store has a definite place in the future, just as people still listen to radio, even though television was supposed to, or movies, sorry, cinema was supposed to kill that. And then television was supposed to kill movie theaters. And, you know, if you look at historical trends, these things don't go away. They just metamorphose to combine with each other and create new experiences. So it, it is true, though, that you could, for example, have a session with a stylist online and you could embrace AI to make the stylist smarter about what to recommend for the customer. And then the stylist can arrange for those things to be, you know, brought forward in the store to say, okay, I've set up what some things, some options for you. They're at this address. Please go pick them up. Or you use the store as a local warehouse. I'm now going to send an order from that store. This is one of the things we have, which I mentioned earlier, same day delivery, where we say, okay, here's the set of things. I'm going to create what we call in teamwork a review order, and we're going to send you all those products to your apartment, to your house, and you're going to be able to look through them, keep what you want, bring back or have the pickup service uh, take back what you don't want, and we'll ring up the sale once you've made your decision. So, but again, finding those right products and meeting, getting the product to the customers I mentioned, the right being at, with the customer and getting the right products to the customer would be a function where AI could facilitate that, make it a better experience. You're absolutely right. That's how you tie it, tie the personalization together. I'm going to ask for your crystal ball now. Any forward-looking, whether you call it advice or consideration for retailers looking to be omni-channel and you have outbound inquiries, you have inbound inquiries, what should they be asking and looking for to kind of get themselves on the journey? Well, the first thing is they should get a partner, a technology partner to be an advisor. And they should get someone who has experience who can demonstrate that they have done it and show real life examples. You know, there was a time when we couldn't do that. And that was, you know, a decade ago. And a decade ago, we started on this omnichannel journey. And in this decade, we've learned a hell of a lot. We've gotten very experienced at doing this. We've learned what works and what doesn't work. And so you want a partner like that. You want someone who's kind of been there and done it as recent as it is. It's still important that they have the battle wounds of having gone through it and really solid on what works. You want that kind of advisor because otherwise you're already usually talking about thin resources, right? Usually there's a tight budget or there's a big underestimation of what it's going to take, or there's a feeling of overwhelm about it and hoping that, you know, maybe this will go away and I won't have to confront it. No, the reality is you do and you have to make change. And what you need is a good partner to help you through that change. So that's the first thing you need to do. You need to assess that partner. What does their staffing look like? Are they 90% marketing and sales and 10% development? Or are they more like 90% engineering and, and service and 10% marketing and sales. These are good considerations when evaluating who would be a good partner to help me in this. And then go at demand to see customers like them 
that where they've had successful imitation and be willing to hear that it's not going to all be perfect because it isn't all perfect. But and if it is all perfect, if you're hearing nothing but perfect, you probably got setups going on. So you want to hear what was the bad things? What were the good things? But was the outcome good? Was it worth the ride? You know, and then once you've done your due diligence on that technology partner, then sit down with that technology partner and work in a collaborative way. Say, okay, what do we have to do to accomplish this? Well, there's going to have to be an analysis of what the current technology stack is and the processes and procedures of the organization. And as I mentioned earlier, it might start with just changing. First, let's get philosophy right about what our goals are with this, right? What we want to accomplish. And, you know, as much as we would like to sell you some software, let's make sure that we're looking at this the right way. We're selling and we're focusing on the right things. What are and one of the things you have to look at, what's going to create the biggest lift for the organization first? Where's the greatest pain point? So let's solve that first as a first step. But let's build that roadmap and realize that it's an ongoing relationship. Software is often now today sold as a software as a service. And that is a very sensible thing to do because version one will only last a period of time. You know, you're going to need version two and version three, and you need to be able to keep up with that. and that incremental evolution. So you want that relationship and you want a long-term relationship because it's just too expensive to build it. Unless you're an enormous retailer, you're not going to build it in-house because you're not going to spend the tens or hundred million dollars on building the technology to do all that. So those would be my primary advices to anyone looking. And then agree on a roadmap, execute on the roadmap, and Make sure the first milestone is hit in a reasonably, you know, if there were some contingencies and was missed by a little bit or whatever, that's fine. You know, make sure that you're making valuable progress. Set up those milestones and expectations and then, you know, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the benefits from having confronted that. And if you approach it on a piece by piece basis like that, you'll arrive three months, six months, nine months, whatever it takes later with the new improved situation. You'll be able to be where the customer is and deliver the product they want. That's very solid advice. Great advice. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.